So the reading this morning has actually been changed and you will find it on page 1103 of your Bible, Acts chapter 9, verse 31 through to the end of chapter 10. So page 1103, starting at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in fear of the Lord. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which, when translated, is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoken to him, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, was no, if Simon who was known as Peter was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is righteous and God-fearing man, who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you to come to his house, so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest of, in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him, and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. 
we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and of the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness and sins throughout his name, through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptised with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Liz, for that marathon read. If I could ask you to please keep your Bibles open at that passage, that would be very helpful. Um, we'll be looking at the text fairly carefully. I'm going to add my welcome to any visitors who are with us this morning. It's really good to have you with us. Before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you will speak to us through your living word as we look to the conversion of Cornelius this morning. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to see and to take to heart the glorious reality that your gospel is for all people. And all this we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Sometimes the best way to appreciate the importance and the impact of the truth is to see how it affects people's lives. And that's what we've tried to do over the last few weeks. So we've seen the truth of how the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ the Saviour has come, had a massive impact on the lives of three key individuals in the New Testament. Three people who put their faith and trust in Christ to reconcile them with God. So we saw the account of a Jewish Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, the archenemy of the faith, the man who pursued the death of Christians whenever and wherever he could, and who became the arch-defender of the faith. We saw the account of the African government official, the Ethiopian eunuch, who was converted through reading the book of Isaiah alongside Philip, the evangelist. And last week we saw the account of the Athenians, of Dionysius, the city council member, and others in Athens, a highly educated and cultured group of men and women who likewise put their faith in Christ. And then finally, we end the series today by looking at the account of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, which, read, which Liz just read for us. 
But this is actually an amazing story, not just of one man, but of two men, of two key figures, of Peter the Apostle and of Cornelius the Centurion. It's the story of how both of these men underwent a massive change and of how their lives are woven together by God as an important step in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to all the nations. And in the story, there are two key lessons for you and for me. But before we get to those, I think what I'd like to do is summarize the events because there's an awful lot that's going on in the passage that was read and there's a lot we need to have a handle on if we're to appreciate the two key lessons that we'll look at later. So here's a, a somewhat brief summary. Now, now we heard the report that Liz read in chapter 10. There are actually some extra details in chapter 11 because in chapter 11, Peter's in Jerusalem with the church and he recounts a number of he recounts the events for that church and for those apostles and he tells them what happened in Caesarea. So we'll weave those details in as we go along. So here's what happens in the story. Peter the apostle has been working his way west and he's been going through Judea and Samaria towards the Mediterranean coast. He's been establishing churches, he's been building up churches. And he finds himself about 40 miles west of Jerusalem in a city on the coast called Joppa. Now he stays in Joppa for a while and he stays there as a host of a man called Simon the Tanner, a man who tans and cures animal skins for a living. So that's where Peter is. 30 miles north of Joppa is Caesarea. Now Caesarea is a huge city. Caesarea is an important place. It's the Roman administrative capital for the entire region of Judea and Samaria. It's a large, impressive city. It's on a trade route. It has a port. It has a military garrison. And in the military garrison, we find a man called Cornelius, who is a centurion. He has a hundred men under him. Now, Cornelius is a very unusual centurion because he and his family are devout people who actually follow the God of the Israelites. Now you would probably find him sat in the back of the synagogue on the Sabbath, listening to God's word being read. They hadn't converted to Judaism, but they were keen God-fearers. They wanted to know God, they wanted to be reconciled to him. So the stage is set. Peter is in Joppa, supporting the church. To the north, 30 miles, Cornelius is in Caesarea, seeking God. And God is on the move. God is on the move to push the gospel out to the Gentile nations. And he's intent on making sure that the Jewish church, starting with the apostles in Jerusalem, accept the new reality. The reality that God's church will include Jews, and Gentiles, and that the Holy Spirit will fall on the Gentiles just like he did on the Jews at Pentecost. So God sends a message to Cornelius through an angel. Chapter 10, verse 4. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering 
before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier. So one of his soldiers was also a God-fearer. A devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and he sends them to Joppa, 30 miles south to where Peter is. The scene switches to Joppa. Peter is on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. The houses had flat roofs and they had awnings and he's praying and God is on the move. So God sends Peter a message through a vision. And it's a message to further prepare Peter to accept that new reality of one church, Jew and Gentile, together. Chapter 10, verse 11. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large, a very large, a great sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Seems Peter needs things to be done three times before he gets it. While Peter was wondering, he was perplexed, he was scratching his head about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and they stopped at the gate. They call out, asking if Simon, known as Peter, is staying there. While Peter was still perplexed and thinking about the vision, the Spirit says to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them because I have sent them. These three Gentile men from Cornelius, one soldier and two servants, are welcomed by Peter. They stay overnight. The next morning, the group heads up north along the coast back to Caesarea, to the home of Cornelius. Now we know from chapter 11 that there's another six men with them. There are six Jewish believers from the church in Joppa that go with them. So there are ten altogether. Six Jewish believers, Peter, two servants of Cornelius and one soldier, three Gentiles. They arrive at Cornelius's home. Cornelius has not been idle. He's been evangelizing and he's not even a Christian yet. So he's gathered a crowd of family and friends to hear the message of salvation from Peter. And we know that because of what we see in 11 verse 13. He, Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So there's that extra little detail from the angel that we don't have in chapter 10. You can imagine the crowd's anticipation. Cornelius has gone around speaking to them. He's told them, I've had a vision. It's been confirmed by others. He said that the message is going to be a message of salvation, and they are waiting in his lounge for Peter to arrive. Verse 27, chapter 10. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, 
you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. That wasn't an Old Testament law. That was Jewish cultural prejudice, which we'll come to later. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius tells Peter what happened when the angel appeared to him, how he then sent for him. Peter reminds the crowd what happened when Jesus walked this earth, when he came to this earth, was born, was died, died and was resurrected. The Holy Spirit does what he did before at Pentecost. To the amazement of Peter and the six Jewish believers from Joppa, God the Holy Spirit awakens the hearts of those Gentiles all at once. They are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're given the gift of tongues and they are baptized. And you have a church in Cornelius' house. Peter stays with them for a few more days and then, as we see in chapter 11, he goes off to Jerusalem with the six disciples from Joppa, key witnesses, to meet with the apostles and the church there, to impress on them the fact that God's elect will come from all nations and that his word will go to the ends of the earth. That's the end of my brief summary. <laughs> now to the main part of the sermon. What do we learn from this? What do we learn? We learn two things. We learn two things. Firstly, we learn that we have one God, but many hands. One God, but many hands. Now, it's always a good exercise. When you're looking at an account like this in the Bible, when you're familiar with it, to just sit back and think about the minor characters. The reason that's a good exercise is because often that way you see what God is doing in the background. So let's look at them. Look at chapter 9, verse 36. In chapter 9, verse 36, you meet Tabitha. Tabitha, who was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, Tabitha is obviously at the church in Joppa, and she, she seemed to have a heart for widows. You can see it in verse 39. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas, or that's Tabitha's Greek name, had made while she was still with them. Peter ushers them out the room. He prays, Lord, please restore her. And his prayers answered and Tabitha is brought back to life. So that's Tabitha. Then there's Simon the tanner. Simon the disciple who opens his home to Peter. Look at verse 43, chapter 9. Peter stayed in Joppa for a time with a, man, with a tanner called Simon. And it seems that he gave Peter free reign to use his house however he saw fit. And you can see that in chapter 10, verse 23. Then Peter invited these men, these three Gentiles, into the house to be his guests, his guests at Simon the Tanner's home. It's very convenient. Tabitha just makes robes. But she's the reason why Peter's in Joppa in the first place, although she didn't exactly volunteer for the job. But nonetheless, Peter's there because Tabitha loved and served others who loved her enough to want her back from the dead and knew that was possible because Peter was only 10 miles away. Tabitha plays a part in the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. 
Simon is just a gracious host who opens his home completely. Simon plays a part in the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. And then there's the six anonymous guys from Joppa who accompany Peter with Cornelius back to Caesarea and go with him to Jerusalem and finally then will have returned back home to Joppa. Crucial witnesses who can then testify to everything that had happened for the church in Jerusalem and for the church back in Joppa. They play a part in the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. None of them are trying to do anything notable or special. They just do what they think needs doing. They just do what the Lord has equipped and put them in the place to do. But God was on the move and his hand was in what they were doing, the small things. It's a great example of what Paul says in a letter he later writes to a church in Ephesus. And he says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Small good works which were key in God achieving amazing great ends. Now can you imagine the discussion over coffee in their hall, they maybe also had new carpets, a few weeks later in Joppa, right? They're all together again in Joppa. Everything has happened. They've gathered together. They're having coffee. Tabitha is rabbiting on about how she was brought back to life through the prayers of Peter the Apostle. Simon is telling them about these three Gentiles who came from Cornelius and ended up staying in his home and the conversation they must have had over dinner that evening. The six brothers could not keep quiet. They're talking about what they learned from Peter during the walk to Caesarea, about what they saw happen in Caesarea in Cornelius' house when the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and makes them his own, about how they couldn't stop praising God on the journey all the way to Jerusalem, over 40 miles, and how the apostles and the church in Jerusalem are now convinced that the gospel truly is for all Gentiles as well, for Jew and Gentile alike. The church in Joppa must have been staggered that God would do such an amazing thing through their little church, through the hands and feet of Tabitha and Simon and six believers. And if you want to see something interesting, go home and read the account of Jonah, who tried to flee from God and not to take the message to the Gentiles, because the place he chose to try and flee from was Joppa. Jonah tries to flee and take the gospel away, take the message of repentance away from the Gentiles by getting into a boat in Joppa and shooting off to Tarshish. God takes the message to the Gentiles by establishing a church in Joppa and taking it to Caesarea. The point is, God uses many hands. He uses the hands of a godly lady just serving the widows, He uses the hands of a godly man who just provides a bed and a meal. So don't look down on the little things that you are doing in serving the church family, whether you're just pouring a cup of coffee or providing a bed and a meal for the night or just being faithful in the day to day because you have no clue what God is doing in the background. Helen Keller put it very well. She said this, she said, I long to accomplish a great and noble task but it is my chief duty to accomplish small tasks as if they were great and noble, because they might just be. It reminds me of a pastor in Canada. 
a man who pastored a number of churches for decades, <clears throat> all very small, no more than 20 to 30 people in each of the churches. He often had to take a firm stand for his faith. He was imprisoned in Canada for taking a firm stand for his faith, but he was faithful to the end. Never saw immediate great fruit for his efforts. He just did the small things faithfully and well. Small things with his flock, small things with his family. What's interesting is that I benefited from his faithfulness. If you're a Bible-believing evangelical Christian, there's a good chance that you benefited from his faithfulness because his name was Thomas Carson and his son is Don Carson. He's one of the most gifted and productive theologians <clears throat> on the planet. God is gracious and he is kind and who knows what he may do with your small faithful tasks. So that's the first thing you learn from this passage. We have one God with many hands, but we also have one gospel for all people. One gospel for all people. Look at chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. <clears throat> I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. There was a huge problem with racial prejudice in Judaism. They forgot that God had set aside the nation of Israel so that, as God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, all nations on earth would be blessed through them, not because they were special, but simply because he was gracious. They took the food laws that God had gave them, that God gave them, Laws which are intended to reinforce a sense and an awareness of the need for holiness and nothing more. And they then extended those laws to regard Gentiles as being unclean, unclean dogs to use their phrase, because Gentiles ate forbidden food. And so they developed traditions and supplementary laws which kept Jew and Gentile firmly apart. No pious Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, much less share a meal with him. You'll find no such command in the Old Testament. And that prejudice was reinforced every time they went into the temple in the New Testament era. Because you see, the temple built by Herod had an added feature which you won't find in the Old Testament description for the temple. Gentiles were restricted to the outskirts of the temple by a balustrade about four and a half foot high by a fence. And it was a fence to warn them to keep out. And there were signs carved in stone, a number of which have been found, at key points along the fence. And on the stone it said this, any Gentile that crosses this barrier will be responsible for their own loss of life. Jesus makes it clear to the apostles on numerous occasions that the gospel, that the church, that the kingdom of God is for all people without distinction. So to quote one example, Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
but hearing it and then believing it and then changing your prejudices accordingly are three very different things. And so God takes Peter the Apostle through a process of change. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he meant all of them, not just the kosher ones. <laughs> when people in Samaria, which is a very mixed Jewish and Gentile area, when they hear that there are believers appearing because of Philip's evangelism, sorry, when the Jewish church hears that there are believers appearing in Samaria because of Philip's evangelism, they're not quite sure how to deal with it. So they send two men to investigate. They send John and they send Peter. God is working in Peter's heart. Then he arrives in Joppa to help with Tabitha. The people there are hospitable. The church is kind. And Peter ends up staying, stay with Simon. He has the space in the room. The problem is, Simon is a tanner. Simon deals in animal hides. That meant that Simon was dealing with animal carcasses all the time. And he was, therefore, by Jewish law, in a state of perpetual uncleanness. But Peter stays with him anyway, probably squirming slightly. Then God sends Peter a vision while he's on a roof praying. And the vision tells him to stop regarding what God has pronounced clean to be unclean, which leaves him not only squirming, but now also somewhat perplexed and scratching his head. Then three Gentile men knock at the door from Cornelius. Peter decides to invite them into the home as his guests, which is absolutely not done by any pious Jew. What you're seeing is that God is breaking down the barriers in Peter's prejudicial Jewish heart day by day, until he is ready to say with conviction in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Peter is being changed. But he's not the only one who struggles with his pride flowering into prejudice, is he? Even as Christians, we all have the seeds of prejudice lingering within us, ready to burst into bloom at any moment. It may be racial. And as a South African who grew up under apartheid, I know all about that. It may be social. And as a congregation of middle class, mostly nicely dressed, decent smelling Basingstokeites, <laughs> we know all about that, about that prejudice. We know when we avoid those people over there because they're just too unpleasant to deal with. We need to pray that God will break down the prejudices in our hearts in the way that he break, broke down the prejudices in Peter's. We really need to pray that. Now, I need to take you down a short little rabbit trail, very briefly. You could spend hours debating at House Group about whether you can get to heaven just by having a healthy respect for the Almighty and being a really, really good person, purely because Peter says in verse 34 that God accepts anyone who fears him and does what is right. But you would be completely missing the point. Peter's point isn't that God is relaxed about what you believe, as long as it's kind of vaguely in the right direction. 
That would contradict much of Acts, it would contradict Peter's letters, it would contradict the rest of the epistles, and it would contradict, frankly, the entire Bible. His point is that God is indifferent as to your race. He's not indifferent as to your beliefs. That's his point. God is indifferent as to your race. He's not indifferent as to your beliefs. We can get off the rabbit trail now. Back onto the main path. We need to see and get to the rest of what Peter says, because that's even more important. So he goes on in verse 36. You know, and he's talking to the people in Caesarea, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. So he reminds them that they know about Christ's credentials. Don't miss that. People in Caesarea had obviously heard about Jesus of Nazareth and were aware of what he had done. He reminds them that even they in Caesarea can testify to the fact that God the Father anointed Jesus the Son at his baptism, his Son who came to this world to reconcile us with God. You know what has happened, he says. And then he reminds them of how Jesus went about performing miracles which even they heard about in Caesarea, which the entire region knew about. Miracles which confirmed that this man was the Messiah, which confirmed that this man was the Savior, that he was the man whom the prophet said would come and would bring, as he says in verse 36. The message that God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The good news of peace between us and God. But how? How was this peace, this reconciliation between us and God ever going to be achieved? What was this good news? He carries on in verse 39. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead and on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Peter testifies to what he witnessed. He witnessed the death of Christ. His casting of the cross as a tree is an illusion. It's with an A, not an I, an A illusion. <laughs> it's a deliberate, a deliberate allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 21 where a death like that is described as cursed. He's highlighting the fact that Jesus' death was no ordinary execution, and he comments on it later in one of his letters, Peter does, when he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. His point is that Christ died as a substitute. He didn't just die as a, as a random person being executed. He died as a substitute. He paid the price for the sins of all of those who would put their trust in him. And Peter testifies to something else he witnessed, the resurrected Christ. 
resurrected with a real body who ate real food and drank real drink. Not a figment of his imagination, but the real Christ. He was seen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And then he closes with this. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so peace, real peace and reconciliation between a God who will hold you accountable for what you are and what you have done is achieved by Christ. It's a peace that includes forgiveness of sin for all who believe in his name, for the Jew, for the Caesarean, for the Gentile, for the Basing Stogite. And that's the offer Peter makes to you if you're not a Christian. He makes an offer of peace and reconciliation with God as your judge, and he gives you a call. He makes a call to you to put your trust and faith in him and to look to him as your saviour. It's the same message of salvation that Cornelius was burning to hear. It's a message that changed the hearts of those people for an eternity. The question is, what about you? What about you? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that you're a God who uses our puny efforts as your children to achieve your great ends. Thank you that you're a God who offers us salvation, who offers us reconciliation before the final day of judgment. Lord, we pray that you would apply the truth of what we've seen and what we've heard to the hearts and minds of any here who do not yet know you, that they might be reconciled to you in peace as their Lord and as their Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name.